Um, 70 years ago Friday, I was preparing a message for Sunday night. We were still having Sunday nights way back then. And, uh, and, and, and the Lord gave me a message entitled, The Victory That Overcometh the World. I was looking at the notes. Actually, I have them. That was my sermon outline 70 years ago. Dare I show you the day? But anyway, I was preparing that message on a Friday and then was going to deliver it on a Sunday night, and I indeed did. And uh, the Lord answered a prayer for me that day, that evening, for Sunday evening at least, to a small church. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to walk off of here a minute. I'm going on this side where we've got something to walk with because I've got some pictures to show you, and I want to be sure I'm talking about the right one. Okay, Pastor, let's see what we got. That was the, that was the way I looked. <laughs> 70 years ago. In fact, that was my graduation picture from Trinity University in um, San Antonio, Texas. Huh? Stand under it? Well, I got some more. May look better. <laughs> anyway, that's the way that I would have looked, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, 70 years ago, dressed up. I was a little bit uh, thinner and had a whole lot of black hair. Okay, Pastor. Okay, Church of God International Preparatory Institute. I, I picked this out to show this morning because this first building has a basement, unusual for San Antonio. But this first has a basement, and on a Sunday evening, Sunday night, 1952, worshiping a Spanish service where I knew very little words, maybe like, baby, veto, baby, veto. I think that's right, for he set me free. Uh, anyway, the Lord called me to preach while in a Spanish service in that building. I lived about three doors down on the same street, but incidentally, just briefly about that, for a number of years in San Antonio, we had a school, by this terminology, for uh, religious leaders and preachers of different kinds from Latin America, all of Latin America. Vesey Hargrave was the superintendent, and one of my brothers was assistant to the superintendent, and I was living with he and his wife and kids in San Antonio, about the third house down. And one side of the building was the Bridges clan, and on the other side of the building it was divided. Uh, I yell, it's a duplex type, but anyway, on the, on the other side was the Hargrave family. And uh, so I've been acquainted with that family, well, even long before that. But their oldest boy and I were about the same age. We, I got... Married in 53, I think he got married in 53, and both of our wives have now died. There is a possibility I might see his wife at the, or widow, I guess you'd call now. I'm not sure about that. But Fessy's, uh, all of his kids are now, now gone since, since, now he's got a boy in Dallas, I'm sorry. But anyway, 
in, the, in this building is where the Lord called me to preach. Okay, Pastor. Now, that building in the center is a small church at the time I was there. And it's bigger than what it looks in that picture. It's a resident now. Out front, we didn't have all that stuff in it. It was just street. And it, it, when you walked in the front, front of the building, that door is right in the middle of the church, and you walked in, there's no vestibule. You walked in and sat down or stood up, whichever you want to do. And, um, but that's where I preached my first sermon. In the back of it was where the minister lived, and it's a total house now, I understand. And in two weeks, I'll be there. Two weeks from tomorrow, I'll be in San Antonio, and, and the local pastor of the church that was here that's now moved somewhere else is going to drive me by this location, okay? Now, we're going to move a long ways ahead of time in my ministry. <clears throat> that was the sole institute or Bible theological seminary for the Church of God in Seoul, Korea. And in 1992 and in 1994, I was privileged to teach in that seminary for two weeks each time, three hours each night, which gave the whole term each time and taught twice over there under the title of pastoral uh, counseling. How you like that? Incidentally, I, I've got a long years on you. I, I pastored and, and, and did counseling and then did counseling for the general church in the state of Ohio, total about 23 years, so hang in. She's a great counselor. Okay, now anyway, um, that's where I taught. It's no longer there. The buildings may be, but the seminary is not. Okay, and one more. Now, I'm in North Korea. Anybody be happy to be in North Korea? But I was in North Korea when that picture was taken. Uh, same time I was teaching there, and, and I stayed at a servicemen's center for military people in the Church of God, military chaplains and regular army or air force or whatever. And we lived, it's right next door to a big 8th army in Korea. And so I got to eat meals in there, uh, meals of um, American food. And we either ate on base uh, with the soldiers or in the officers' quarters, and we got to eat both. But while we were there, uh, I called USO and I called U.S. Army, and I said, is there any chance that we could go up to the DMZ uh, I would love to see it. And um, they said, no, it's full. If you'll come down and be here, if somebody don't show up, you can go. So Claudine and I, uh, second time I went over, so when this happened, and uh, we went down and stood outside the bus, and thank God some people didn't show up. So we got on the bus and drove up to the DMC. That is inside the room where all of the peace talks, if you call them peace talks, between North and South Carolina, North and South Korea uh, were held. Now, there's a microphone in that room uh, right in the middle of the table. When you walk in that room, you can only walk around the table. You can't say anything. You can't touch the table. Everything is sound. And they're scattered. You can hear it all over North Korea as well as South Korea uh, in military. So we couldn't do anything. However, that is a South Korean soldier and uh, thank God he was, I was allowed to take a picture. But uh, that's, that's a little bit of a broad scope of what God has done for me 
in the past 70 years. Let me try to get back up here now. And thank you, Pastor, for giving me that little extra time this morning uh, that I might show you a little bit about what happened to me over the years. And in between there, there was a lot of preaching and a lot of other things to do. Uh, and, and I'm so grateful that I was able to do that. Now, thank you for being with me today. Uh, some of you have not seen in a while, and I'm just so, I'm so glad you're here uh, to worship with me today. Some family. Uh, talked to another family member this morning that plans to look to watch this program. And might be now, I'm not sure. And uh, another son told me yesterday, or a son told me yesterday, to be sure that I sent him the information uh, to watch the program after today and also to remember him in prayer. And I want to mention that because he fell a few weeks ago and hurt a vertebrae in his back and he can barely get out of bed. So then he asked for prayer and so I would do that this morning from this pulpit. But it's so good to have all of you. Some of you I haven't seen in a while and uh, I'm just so glad you're here. Now this message this morning is a two-fold message. And I've got 35 minutes, according to the clock up there, to do two things. One, I'm going to do a little bit of history of me, besides what you just saw. And um, most of it you didn't see. And then I've got a message this morning that I want to leave with you of what, what I think we ought to be doing in the next years ahead of us uh, for heritage, that our heritage would be able to be carried on for God in the church. And so, uh, it's so it's so good to be able to do that. Uh, I've got most of it written down. How much I'll follow, I don't know. I tell, I tell people I was born in Northeast Texas, and, and if you didn't stay close, to, if I don't stay close to my notes, um, I'd be like rabbits, just running every direction. And if you ever watched a rabbit hop around, you know what they do. They'll hop one direction and stop and just on like top of a dime and go another direction. And particular jackrabbits, which I'm acquainted with, because there were many of those around where I lived. I never was very good at hunting them. They were too fast for my, for my gun, <laughs> which means I never could shoot at them. They jumped around so much. But today I'm going to talk about my view of the Church of God heritage and then a little, little bit of a sermon about what I think we ought to do for the future. From my memory, probably beginning at about age six, when I was a little small child from my age, wiggling around the front of the church and up and down the aisle and under the church and back out from under the church, and my mother grabbed me and stood me out to the edge of the bench and turned me round and round and round and sat me down. That's the first memory I have of church. But it's a long-standing memory because she never had to do that again. But during the, uh, during the nine months my mother carried me, they went to church um, from two to four times a week. My, all my family went to church. That was one thing we never missed. We never missed church. We went to services at some time. Revival services would go from two to six and eight weeks. Now we do good if we have a Sunday morning service. A lot of change in the last years. But then on March 30th, 1931, I was born and within that week, before I was a week old, I was already back in church, this time as a 
little small child. All my family was there, mother, dad, three brothers, three sisters, and one sister living too far away to be there. My, my local church in Texas is located in northeast Texas. We're about 15 miles maybe from Oklahoma. I think it's the third oldest church of God in the state of Texas. Um, when I grew up, it was a church that had a tabernacle-style building. We had dust or, or sawdust or, or just dirt as a flooring. We had slant beaches. And many of you probably from some of these southern states will remember those pretty well. Um, we had an old pot-bellied stove down front that heated the building. And I tell you that because one of the things that I'm going to mention this morning happened around that big stove. Uh, in those days, people would sing. I mean, they would sing their heart out. There wouldn't be two or three songs. They'd just sing until they got ready to have a sermon and quit. I must tell you, I grew up on 4-4 four, four singing. You know what that is? Anybody know what 4-4 four, four is? Well, they just sang most of this this morning with four or four time. And we had three or four verses to every song, and we sang every one of them. Nearly every time we would just sing through a song, but I had a brother that taught music. Um, by the time I came along, he had quit, and well, he's actually working in some more states in the south, southeast part of the United States. And so, and so I never, never learned to read music, but always sung. Anyway, I remember people shouting in those days. Many times they'd walk or run up and down the, up and down the middle of the aisles and around and, and uh, speak in tongues and interpretation and you name it. The ladies, the ladies all had long hair. Uh, that's a little bit of a change from now, isn't it? And they'd shout so hard sometimes they'd just throw bobby pins everywhere. Uh, those are days that were long, long gone, but that was part of my heritage. But that stovepipe, that stove had pipes that went up through the ceiling, and I've seen that those stovepipes red hot from the fire that was in it. And people, while they were under the Spirit of the Lord, why they did it, I have no answer, but I've seen it more than once. They'd grab that stovepipe that's red hot with their hands while they were dancing in the Spirit and never be burned. We know the Lord has to do some different things today because we don't have any pot-bellied stoves, I don't think. Maybe some somewhere. But God has to use us differently today than that for people to realize that the Holy Spirit works through our lives. Uh, that's not the last time I saw the Lord work. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I was in, uh, in uh, Denver, Colorado to preach a youth camp out at the... Uh, Colorado, out at, at, at Colorado Springs, and my one of my brothers was overseer, and we went to visit, and went out to church that morning in downtown Denver. After service, I wasn't preaching. Actually, a man that became a Navy chaplain was preaching, and he had preached there a long time. I mean, he was preaching, and um, and after service, <coughs> we went to get in our cars to leave and go home. Well, no parking. No, no parking lot. The only parking was on the street or between the church and the house, parsonage. And uh, going across the street that day, I knew no one was behind me. I didn't know it. But I had to go across the street to my car. 
And no unbeknownst to me, my five-year-old son at the time was walking behind me. About the time I got to my car to open the door, a car hit him in the middle of the street and knocked him about 30 feet or more down the street, and he landed upon the front tire of another car. I immediately ran to him, knelt down and began to pray, but while I began to pray, I began to pray in tongues. A very unique thing happened there, church. The man that struck him came and knelt down beside me and tried to talk to me because I was speaking in his Indian language. Reminds me of the day of Pentecost when 16 or 18 different nationalities below the upper room heard the people upstairs speaking in tongues in their languages. And that's the way it is supposed to be. That's why there needs to be an interpretation. But that's a part of our early church and my early church. Then I'll switch a little bit to, to the Church of God. Church of God began in 1886. That's the church that we represent here today. It began in the hearts of two men by the name of Richard Sperling Sr. and John Plemons in 1984. And by 1986, after spending hours and hours in prayer, uh, they started meeting together in a building that's represented inside your bulletin today. On the inside, you'll see what's called a grist mill. And they had service inside of that. The first services was in that little grist mill. And initially, eight people showed up. And then a second, two or three days later, or two or three weeks later, a second person sh showed up, another person, pardon me, and that was the first preacher's son, and their names was R.G. Spurling Sr. and Jr. and John Plemons. The church continued to grow, but very, very slow for the few years. But in, 10 years later, in 19 and 1896, a revival began to break out uh, in... Um, in North Carolina and South Carolina, and the confluence right there together, not very many miles out of Cleveland, Tennessee today. And they had to find a larger place to worship, so they chose the Shira Schoolhouse building. And they worshiped there for some period of time, but it wasn't very long until the Holy Ghost began to visit that congregation. They were Baptist and Methodist. And they began to have speaking tongues and interpretation, and it scared the school people who owned the building, so they told them they had to move. They moved into the home of, uh, of, of W.F. Bryant. And I'll mention that name again in a few moments. But they moved into his home and had church there for about, I don't know, uh, two or three years, not very long. And then a man by the name of Murphy became the pastor. And he pastored until 2006 when they had their first general assembly in Cleveland, Tennessee. They had in his home, the church was now called the Holiness Church of Camp Creek because that's where that grist mill was in 1886. Eight, by 1996, church wasn't very big, but the Holy Ghost began to pour out and the church began to grow. So that, then the first assembly in 2006 was held in the home of J.C. Murphy in the notes of people that of our, of our church history says, and it was a bad snowstorm. Well, there wouldn't have been any churches to come together, but they did come together. Now, I've got a couple of notes I want to throw in here that shows how old I am. 
when uh, we moved to Cleveland, Tennessee in 1955, and I was state secretary treasurer for the churches of God there for five years, my wife began to work at the Church of God Publishing House, and she was a proofreader. Well, her boss, manager, whatever, as she worked there that day, or those five years, was J.C. Murphy's grandson. That's putting me back a long time ago, wasn't it? And another bit of trivia, when I went to Lee College out of high school in 1948, moved from my home in northeast Texas to Cleveland, Tennessee, um, I worshipped at church with a lady by the name of Nettie Bryant, and she was the wife of the, that third pastor that pastored for quite a long while. So I, my, myself as a person and Claudine had, had uh, the opportunity of meeting people that were in those very, very first services of the Church of God. Now also in the little side of the bulletin today, you will notice a couple more things I just want to mention right quick. One of them is that the man's picture and his wife was the second pastor Actually, you could almost call him the first pastor. That's R.G. Sperling, Jr., and his wife. Um, but uh, he did pastor a couple of years or so, and then, and then Reverend Mr. Bryant, who was a very influential man, probably a rich man for that day, became the pastor of the church. In 1944, uh, my dad was employed in, in Sevierville, Tennessee, having built a the dormitory for what we call back in those days BTS in college, Bible Training School and College. I heard that name last week uh, because an offshoot of that, or at least an offshoot of it, was East Coast Bible College where Brother Vandermeter had gone to school many years ago. But anyway, we moved to Sevierville, Tennessee in 1944, and I was a freshman in high school and went to old BTS as a freshman. Um, I, I, all of us are on a scroll picture. If I'd had uh, something to magnify where you could see all of that, I'd have brought it with me this morning because I'm standing in the front row. Everybody else is kneeling, and they're as tall as I am standing. Uh, I've grown a whole lot. You may think I'm a little short today, and I guess I am, but you ought to look at that picture. But anyway, while we lived there, we attended a church in the Sevierville uh, itself, some of the time at school, but just my family was there. We went to local church quite a bit. And the name of the church had to do with where the church was located. And the church that was located in Sevierville, Tennessee at that time, and just one, was in a little section of town called Frog Alley. Isn't that amazing? But the Lord saved me at an old altar prayer in a little church, again, with slat floors. You could look through the floor sometime and see the ground. But on that night, I guess the preacher must have preached hell pretty hot. At any rate, I went to the altar and accepted Christ as a 13-year-old. And it was from then on that I served God. Um, and now I'm completing 70 years of preaching, which started some 9 or 10 years later. And I just want to give you a couple of things out of, uh, out of uh, my, my ministry uh, during that time. During the 70 years... Through the sermons that I preached and the pastoring that I did, uh, 669 people accepted Christ as their personal Savior. 260 were sanctified. 268 baptized with the Holy Spirit. And 206 added to the church. And to me, knowing preachers and, 
in preachers' families, that's a pretty good group of people to be one to the Lord by a preacher from northeast Texas that was reared out on the farm. Now, I want to use the rest of my time, and I got 20 minutes, and I'll probably just about do it by the time I normally like to quit, which is quit preaching is 12 o'clock. Not too many years ago, two or three, while Brother Mitchell's pastor, he wanted to have church on. He's either Easter, he's either either on the Easter Sunday or the day before Easter. And the council met, and I wasn't on it then, but the council met and said, "Well, he said I'm going to have service, but I don't know about people coming to church at Christmas time." And Brother Ken Phillips, who's on vacation now, said, "Use Jackie Bridges because he won't preach long." And he did, and I didn't preach long. But the rest of the morning, I want to talk to you about what must we do to maintain our heritage. You know, we have a heritage too. Every one of us has a heritage. It may be good, it may be bad. We may have come out of a bad, bad background. I came out of a background that everybody went to church and served the Lord. Had two preachers preach ahead of me. That's one of the reasons I didn't want to preach. I thought, I thought my mother and dad had enough preachers in the family. A daughter, of, a sister of mine married a preacher. But God answered my fleece, and I've been 70 years since, and I've enjoyed that, enjoyed that journey. But what, what must we do to maintain our heritage in the days to come? And the first thing I want to mention this morning is the fact that we must have compassion. You'll notice in this sermon this morning, I'm using the three C's to emphasize what I want to say. And the first of those is compassion. We must have compassion. Sharing, praying, giving. Early churches had that. Our church needs that. Individually, we need that. There's three scriptures I, I want to leave with you this morning that emphasize that. First is Colossians 3.12. It says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Ephesians 4.32, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And finally, 1 Peter 3.8, finally, brethren, be of one mind, having compassion one for another. So we must maintain that if we want to have a heritage from ourselves in the days ahead for not only church of God, but wherever we might be worshiping. And that to me would be a church of God somewhere. Early churches did a lot of new things. I'm just going to mention one from our local church in northeast Texas. We started a program in that part of the country. I didn't, but the churches did before I was born of what they called pounding for the pastor. Anybody know what that is? Anybody got an idea? Uh, I think five or six raised their hand. And it don't mean beating them up. It means that, well, the word pounding in that particular instance had to do with the price of a pound of lard. So they got the word pound and called it pounding. But, but ever so often, maybe every week, people would bring food in for the pastor and his wife and kids because they didn't have enough money to live by when you got everybody's sharecroppers. There just wasn't a whole lot of money to go around. And we began to do that in northeast Texas, Parts of Oklahoma, maybe Arkansas, they did that for years and years. And I'm so thankful. And thank you for the water. Not only did you sing good, but I needed that.
I probably ought to tell you a story. Back when I was a young preacher, uh, I didn't think people would drink water while they preached. And um, I went to a service one time with Ray Hughes. And Ray Hughes could quote more scripture than I could almost ever remember. Never remember. He'd, he just quoted all sermon long. And those of you heard me. And right in the middle of one sermon, I went to a revival. I went with him and I rode with him to a revival from uh, Cleveland to Chattanooga. And during the, right in the middle of that sermon, he stopped and got him a big glass of water. I said, oh, come on, Ray. You shouldn't have to do that. But thank you for bringing this to me this morning. <clears throat> I think I better set it down. But anyway, we, uh, we started, the churches started pounding, and they brought stuff to the pastor. I, I remember several times we reared on a farm. We had everything, chickens, hogs, cattle, squirrels, whatever. And um, I, I remember many times having my mother count out eggs. And every time we'd get to 10, she'd lay one aside. And after we got through counting whatever, we had a lot of chickens. And we could kill them to eat by the dozens almost. Or we could let them get grown and, 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 and bring forth eggs. And we'd count them out, and I'd, I'd be happy to help her count them out because, because every, tenth, every tenth egg went to the preacher. And we tried to do that for about everything we had. That's where I came up with the idea, finally, be all of one mind having compassion one for another. Because people, people really need the Lord, and we need to be able to help them. The scriptural setting I want to use for that is in the third chapter of Genesis. For the compassion of the Lord himself was shown. The Bible says that Adam and Eve sinned. And after they had realized that they were, that they were naked, they made themselves clothing of fig leaves. Don't know how much clothing they had of fig leaves, but for, Lord, for the Lord it wasn't enough. And so he came down in the cool of the day and he began to look for them and, and they were hid among some of the trees or shrubs of the, of the Garden of Eden, and he had to call them out. And he said to them, where, where are you? They said, well, we were afraid, and we hid ourselves. Why were you afraid? Because, well, we knew you would not be happy with us wearing fig leaves. What have you done? Of course, he knew what they had done. They'd eaten of the forbidden fruit that God told them to leave alone. But in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, the scripture records in verse, in verse 21, the Lord God made coats or tunics of skins and clothed them. Now that could be a little controversial statement, couldn't it? Where did he get the clothing? I mean, what did, did he kill some animals? Or did he just make some more clothes out of the thin air with, by skins? My knowledge, he probably killed something. Not only did he make them clothes, he became a tailor. He made them to fit them. Boy, I tell you what, tailor-made clothes is the best you can get. I might be wearing, and I am, a suit I bought in 1944 in Seoul, Korea. It cost me $45 tailor-made. I would love to have some more. Suits now are two or $300, and, and it's kind of not good cloth then. But these were made out of good stuff, and I'm still wearing it today. You thought I'd gained weight, didn't you? But the Lord came down in the cool of the day, and he made tunics or coats for them to wear. That seems to me like 
bet he was probably covering most of their body as they were there in the garden. Now, am I right? I'm not real sure. But anyway, that's the first point that I want to leave with you. The second point I want to leave with you this morning is we must also have concern for others. Jesus was a prime example of having concern for others. Over and over, you find scriptures where he is helping people on the wayside by the pool of Siloam, wherever he found them, by, by the Sea of Galilee where he fed the hundreds. Uh, it's just unreal what the Lord did over and over and over. And all of us know some of that because we've been in church a long time. But one of the scriptures that came out to me as I was studying this, actually just yesterday, uh, it was out of Luke chapter 18, where blind Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus uh, was by, by the wayside begging and people and, and shouting for Jesus to stop when he came by. And people said, don't do that. Just, just, just be quiet. But, but, but Bartimaeus would not be quiet because Bartimaeus knew that he had a need that only God could provide. That he had a need that only God could provide. Now church, there's where we find ourselves with the Lord every day. Because no matter who we are, or what our needs are, there's only one person that can meet every need of our life, and that's the Lord. And He is, he is one that loves every one of us. And the blind Bartimaeus kept crying until the Lord went by. And when he got there, he asked him what he wanted, and he said, I would like to receive my sight. And the Lord healed him that day, and Bartimaeus was no longer blind, but he was a follower of Christ as they walked about the day, there, the days thereafter. The scripture says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the Christ. But there's another set of scriptures where he had a great concern, and it's a little bit different story. He found ten lepers, and the Bible says he healed all ten lepers. But after, after healing all ten lepers, guess how many said thanks? One. Only one said, thank you, Lord. Only one. How thankful are we for everything he does for us? Every breath we breathe. Every time we speak a word. Every time we lay down to sleep and get a good night's rest. Every time those of us preach who stands before a congregation. Those who sing. Every time. It's because of him that we're able to do that. Let me give you a little something just in my, in my vocation, not vocation, devotion, yesterday morning. It says, Christ came to serve. He let a woman in Samaria interrupt his rest. A woman in adultery interrupted his sermon. A woman with a disease interrupted his plans. And one with remorse interrupted his meal. You see, that's good for all the women, isn't it? But look, the Lord does the same thing for men too. For whatever our needs are, our God is sufficient and He wants to meet all of our needs. And He's concerned this morning about you and He's concerned about me. Paul wrote in Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, of which we are so mindful. Paul was writing to the church of Philippi and says, Thank you for your gift of money. You helped me to extend my missionary journeys. 
And I want to thank you for doing that. And that's the way ministry is provided today. Our pastor provided through your tithing offering of this church. The bills are paid in this building because of your giving of your tithe and offering. And if we don't have those, I can tell you sometimes we run pretty short <coughs> because I help Neil count the money about every Sunday. We need every one of you in this building today to be a faithful person all of your life. And Psalms 19 and 7 says, He hath pity upon the poor, but he lendeth unto the Lord. Who lendeth unto the Lord? So, there's one, one verse of scripture I do want to leave. It's out of Ecclesiastes 4 and 9. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Which means they work together. Not only does the Lord serve, but we also serve. We work together. But I'm so, I'm so mindful of ten lepers that he would heal. Yet with only one would come and thank him for it. There's been many people I know I've helped over 70 years. I've never heard from some I knew for years and years as pastors or work with them. Last church I pastored in Akron, ten and a half years. And so I know, I know kind of how they lived and how they got along and you name it. The Lord helped us there. We had a great ten years. I wasn't particularly ready to go back into pastoring. I was working with Pathway Press out of Cleveland, Tennessee, and, and Claudine and I both liked our work, and, and we were ready to stay there until I retired some another another 10 or 11 years later. But God, for some reason, allowed all the bookstores to be closed, and I went back to pastoring. And one of them was right there in Akron. And I enjoyed my 10 years there, 10 and a half years there. A third thing, and I've got uh, seven minutes, I think I'll get pretty close to it, folk, is that we must have a commitment. A commitment to what? To God. Well, it helps to work with one another, doesn't it? But we must have a commitment to God. It has to be a commitment to God. Not only on compassion as I started with and a concern, but we have to have a commitment to God to do what He wants us to do. See, I'm talking about something for the future. I talked about the area, my heritage and church heritage of the past, but what are we going to do for the future? And that's what I'm trying to get across in this message this morning. And the last word I want to use is commitment. In Acts chapter 4, there's a well-known story. It's a story of a man who sold all of his land, a man by the name of Barnabas. And that, that word Barnabas means encourager. Barnabas sold all of his land, and he gave all the money to the disciples to use as they traveled across the country. Well, Ananias and Sapphira thought they'd get in on the glory, so they also sold some land, and... Um, they went to the disciples and gave them some money, but one of the disciples discerned that this wasn't all the money they had received, and they, so they pointed out to them, and um, guess what happened to them? For trying to do something that was right, but they did wrong, the Lord struck both of them dead right inside that building. So you see, you've got, you, you got to be committed to God and do what He asks for each one of us to do. A true commitment. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord your God to walk His statutes and to keep His commandments. To keep His commandments. For I do this willingly. I have a reward. And the, thing, the, the scripture I'm going to use to point this out is 
out of Luke chapter 10. It's the Good Samaritan. What a commitment this man made to God and to a man. He found a man on the wayside, possibly dying without some help. And the Bible says a good Samaritan, who normally would not help a Jew, did that day. He bound him up the best he could. He gave him wine on his sores. He did everything he could. Took him to an end or clinic, entire day. And told the people there, look, take care of him. And when I come back this way in a few days, if, I've, if you've had to spend some money that you did not have, if you had to spend more than I gave you, then I'll repay you for all. If that isn't true commitment, I do not know it. Amen. He gave his all. Not just some, but he gave his all for that man he had never seen in his life. That is real true commitment. And that's the story of what Christ does. Christ meets our needs right at the place that we need them. It may be healing for some. It may be financial for others. It may be social or something for others. But whatever it is and wherever it is and whenever it is, God meets those needs. The Good Samaritan. So this morning I've tried to say to you, for our heritage for the, day, for the days ahead, that we're going to have to do those three things. We're going to have to have compassion. We're going to have to have concern. And we're going to have to have commitment. I'd like you to stand and sing with me if we can without music. It'd be a little bit long for somebody to come. And I'd like for us to sing the chorus at least uh, once or twice uh, to, to be like Jesus. I think we all know that. Um, and so I'll try to get us started and hope we can do it. Sing with me. To be like Jesus. Come on. To be like Jesus. That's all I ask. To be like Him through all life's journey. From life to glory, that's all I ask, to be like Him. Now, I'm talking about church commitment, but I want to close to ask you individually, how about your commitment to the Lord Himself? How is your commitment individually to the Lord this morning? It could be that some of you have never really made a big commitment to the Lord. There was a man who, who, who uh, heard the message about blind Bartimaeus, and he wrote these songs one day, this, these words of this song. I sat alone beside the highway begging. His eyes were blind. He could not see. He clutched rags and shivered in the shadows but then Jesus came and made the darkness flee and four other verses of that song written many years ago by a preacher you know, he's able today to change your whole outlook because of what he's done for these that I've talked about these 30 minutes or so this morning he's willing and ready and he knows your need Heavenly Father I thank you today for the opportunity to stand before these people. People I love, I've been a part of, many of them, for 20 years. 
some for less time, some for only since we've been in this building. But Lord, you are a great God. You understand everything about us. You know about us because you're our maker and we serve you. Now, Lord, if there is some that needs to find a place of prayer today to become your servant and to live and work for you, I pray for them in the closing moments that I have this morning. Now, touch this congregation. May they remember some of my past. May they remember the words that I've said to them in looking ahead that we must have if we're going to be the kind of a Christian we need to be and build a church and have it to be what we want it to be in the future. Thank you, Lord, for being with us today in music, in giving, now in message. In Christ's name.